Today, on the podcast I have with me, award-winning filmmaker Carrie Love. Thanks for joining me, Carrie. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And there's a lot I want to talk about, obviously, but uh, I really wanted to, first of all, just let you introduce yourself uh, and tell me a little bit about where you came from, where you grew up, and how you got started in filmmaking. How to put that into a soundbite? Well, it doesn't have to be a soundbite. Like, where are you from? I am from Michigan, um, but my family moved around a lot, so it's hard to say, like, where in Michigan I'm from. So I sometimes say Detroit, I some, sometimes say Flint, I sometimes say Midland, and then Traverse City, depending on the context of the conversation. So we moved around, like, every couple of years. Um, then uh, went into teaching and then nonprofit work with the church and then uh to film school to become a filmmaker okay how did you get uh, well actually what did you study in undergrad my first undergrad is in biology education secondary biology education i was a biology teacher but then when i took my test i got a perfect score on the math side so whenever i got hired they were like you can teach math too right so it, it not highfalutin math like the easy math test but uh, yeah, so I was a high school math and science teacher. And wh- why, why, why did you uh, quit that? It was an odd time uh, in Michigan for education. So I would be hired into a position, and then that position was closed out due to budget cuts. And so I worked at basically four different districts within two and a half years. What? Yeah, well, some of it was subbing. Some of it was kind of half hired, half not hired. Um, but it was it was interesting, too, because uh, there was a public school, a private school, a charter school, and then a homeschooling group type school structure. So, um, so then it, it, it was very interesting to see how everything was the same, yet everything was different, and how these different programs worked. Was there a particular type of school that you preferred over another, as opposed to like charter school, public school, home school? That's tough. I think they all have interesting features about them. Um, did you go to public school growing up? I did go to public school. I liked public school a lot. It was a good school system that we were in. I think when public school is done well, like it's well funded and it's in a supportive town, that is the ideal. But you get into places where they're underfunded and really pinched and inferior facilities, and then that's not ideal. It's it's a very hit or miss if they're hitting if they're taking care of their students or not. Um, the private school is much better at collecting all of the students and bringing them along, but it's also a lot more sort of judgy. Like you need to fit into the mold of that space, or mm-hmm. you don't do very well. You get alienated. And that's true even for the sciences. In the the private school that I was at, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I went. It was a Christian private school, so okay. it was very specifically like, did you fit the norm of not just Christian, but this version of Christian? And were you required to go to chapel services and church events and things like that? Yes, uh, they they knew that everyone was coming from a different specific church but they did require that you attend a church on sunday mornings and then they had chapel services throughout the week three days a week i believe so which which church was this affiliated with this was a non-denominational church out of detroit it had started with the assemblies of god but then had kind of done really well and so they didn't want to have to follow all of the norms or all of the regulations and so they kind of broke off so a lot of the philosophy and flavor of the space was the same but they were their own entity 
okay. which was really interesting. And so therefore, like, you could even be assemblies of God next to them, but they still, like, kind of thought their brand was the better brand. That's really branding. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, and that's not really a, a good word for it. There's a better word for it. But, like, their take on it, it. Okay. Their, oh, their interpretation is the more accurate interpretation. So how did you transition into nonprofit from from teaching? Was it just a natural extension? Was it did you meet people through the school or the church that got you into that? Through uh, in college, my undergrad was at a Christian Bible school, and we were required to take religion classes. And one of my professors was a missionary, and so I just kind of had stayed in contact with him. And then when we were teaching. Um, I talked Matt into going on to a missions trip to the Dominican Republic, and I said, hey, I've got this missionary friend. He'll take a really good care of us. We should go down there. And so we went one year. Matt really liked it and said, let's go back. And then on the second year, the missionary kind of approached us saying, you know, we kind of need help down here if you guys want to do this. So it became a full-time thing for you. And it became a full-time thing, which is involved. Like you had, we had to become ministers. So we went through like credentialing classes and tests and yeah i I have a minister's card uh did you have to go to seminary or not seminary they have different ways of getting credentialed and so because i had gone to the bible school i already had a majority of my religion classes and had to just do some night classes like individual study so you, Thanks. Uh, are you technically ordained, or is it just you are legally a minister? There are three levels within the assemblies, and so the top one is ordained. I'm the second like one down from that. So it's certified, licensed to preach, and ordained. And they each have like different privileges with them. And that's specific to assemblies? Assembly of God. Right. I'm not sure how it works outside of that denomination. They Me kind neither, of all have but... their own systems. Okay. Well, it... But I am a recognized minister and have a card, and I can marry and bury. <laughs> so what was your mission work, obviously, is spreading the gospel, right? Yeah. But there's also all these, I mean, you're going to the Dominican Republic, like, there's got to be more to it than that, of course. I mean, so Right. We never w- saw ourselves as preachers. That was right. not our goal. Yeah. Because, and, and even just, you know, since I've known you, I, I've never thought, oh, carry the preacher, carry the minister. It's, it's, it's more been carry the humanitarian, carry the helper carry the one who gets things done oh thank you <laughs> no, really because i think that's why you're such a great producer because i mean i can come to you and you you have the particulars figured out and you enable other people to do their jobs better and so i imagine that go i mean so can you tell me a little bit about your first mission trip and like why it was something you wanted to keep doing uh my first missions moment was probably more at an altar call um, so there was a youth event called the Choir of the Fire, and um, they get, like, it's a weekend, and there's a lot of preaching and hype and music and then, like, prayer time. And in the prayer time, I really felt like God was speaking to me to become a missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, so at age 16, before having done anything, I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So when I went to the Bible school in Florida, I had started with a missions major and then switched it over to education because then I'd have something practical to offer when I got to the field. Um, but that was my kind of goal. My first email address was crazymissionary at hotmail.com. <laughs> that's a little focused, you crazy. know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. That's, it's interesting because they, cause there's a, like you heard the call. Yes. That's pretty wild. I mean, because you, you hear that all the time. Like I, I never actually, I used to want to be a missionary. Uh, there, was a, there was a missionary from, uh, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but uh, Eritrea or Eritrea or it used to be part of Ethiopia. Mm. 
and there's a missionary who came to the church I was raised in, and he was just the most dynamic storyteller I'd ever seen. And at I, I must have been nine years old, I just thought, I have to go there and be a missionary. Like this guy, this sounds awesome. It's only on further reflection and kind of looking back that I, I realize that I was responding to the adventure. I was responding to the storytelling. I was responding to this like magical place that's not my backyard. So I never was actually felt called to be a missionary, but I mean, the idea of adventure still looms large in my, in my mind. That's interesting. So, I mean, ever the pragmatist, you you studied education. I did. I did. Um, I studied education. Um, When Matt and I, when he started showing interest, I was very clear with him up front and said, hey, listen, I'm called to be a missionary, which means if we get together, then God will call you too. So I need to know if you would go or not. And so Matt, a little shocked by it, said, well, if God calls me, I'd go. And I said, okay, cool, this works. Wow. So Dominican Republic. What Dominican was, Republic. What was that approach like? Uh, or was there something specific that you needed to do down there? Like, did you need to build a school? Did you need to dig a well? Did you need yeah. to... Yeah. The, the missionary that we had been working with and that invited us to come behind him had been running a program called Child Hope uh, down there for about 18, 20 years. And so he had been recently invited to become an area director. So he needed, he needed somebody to come in and take over the day-to-day operations of the Dominican. So there was something very specific that we were going to do. And Child Hope is an education program that helps uh, kids in, in poor areas that might not have access to schools, to get to schools, and not just schools, but... Uh, in Latin America, a lot of times the public schools are just really inferior in quality. They have 50 students to a classroom. There aren't enough books. Um, the teachers don't really care as much. But the private schools, if you have any sort of resource, you go to a private school. So we're offering a far superior educational opportunity for these students. Mm-hmm. And other things, too, like we have... Um, a feeding program we have an extreme poverty fund is what we call it but it's if there's medical emergencies like we can respond and help supplement with the cost of what that might be for a student or faculty in the school um, lots of like really neat things lots of like, providing basic human needs <laughs> right right without some of the the red tape and bureaucracy of doing it in the states it's a little more like shoot from the hip so you mm-hmm. can kind of respond a little more organically to the need um but then yeah it, it's it's really it's draining but exciting and you can do what you feel like you should be able to do every day but there's so many things holding you back in a first world context did you have to learn a new language Yes, we did. Uh, so part of the process was getting credentialed, and then we have to go through like the interview process, which is extremely involved. It was like a week-long sessions and, and testing and psychological examination stuff. Uh, then you get approved, and then there's a little over a year of fundraising to, to raise your budget. And then we went to Costa Rica for a year. Um, uh, Latin America has several different types of Spanish, and they found that Costa Rican and Colombian Spanish is the best. And so they could kind of group all of the missionaries through this one particular school, enculturate them a little bit, and give them a good base before they go out to their individual countries. Okay. That's convenient. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the only one like that because you go any other country in the world and there are separate languages. Right, yeah. So even with French, there there are some, several countries that speak French. So some people go to Canada for their language school. But okay. even then, it's 
hit or miss if it's helpful. Like you could get French in Montreal, but then when you go to Haiti, it's a very different language. And then you go to Morocco and it's radically different because of the Arabic influence. So you were in school for a very long time is what it (laughs) sounds like. Yeah, I'm I'm probably an eternal student. I'm one of those. (laughs) So you you go down there, you're, you're providing basic human needs, you're helping with education for feeding, childhood. And how much of what you were doing was directly about, like, the, the word, the gospel? Or was that something that the missionary that you worked with was focusing on and you were sort of the things that maybe he couldn't do himself? Because I, I'm always interested in, in, in hearing about that because I feel like if you go someplace and your only thing is the word, mm-hmm. then they're going to look at you like, this is not helping me at all. But if you're talking about the word and then you're actually providing you know, if you're expressing the love of Christ or if you're expressing the ideals of the religion in which you are serving, then that's the best way to actually transmit those ideas. Like, how did, yeah. how did that feel to you as, as far as your role? I Nine times out of ten, a missionary is gospel first and the practical second. And by giving them the gospel, like you might do something practical to help them, but it's a tool to get to the gospel. Um, that wasn't really how we functioned. They, they wanted us to function that way, and they were always being encouraged to function that way, but that's just not how we did. That wasn't what we valued as much. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, you're you're focused more on the tangible I'm realities very focused, of poverty. Yeah. And, right. yeah, we've got different ways we can help the schools. They've got these pr- practical needs that we can meet. Um, they don't have playgrounds. Let's give them playgrounds. They don't have libraries. Let's get them libraries. They don't have a science lab. Let's get them a science lab. That was much more of our thrust, but to make a case for the other side, there is a real tangible difference for people who get the religion and morality that's taught to them. Um, It's interesting, um, if you go into a community where a school has been for more than 10 years, there are inevitably graduates out in that community and they're very often the community leaders of that area. Like they've gotten instilled a lot of responsibility, family structure, um, how to take care, you know, how to be kind to other people, which they may not have gotten without being in that context. And so it brings a lot more stability to their home life and therefore uh, stability to the community. Um, one quote from the missionary in Peru is that he had a father come up who was a known drunkard in the community and he had uh, four kids that he was trying to get scholarships to come in and the missionary was like well you know you could come to church too and he's like no no I, I know I want my kids there because the kids who come out of that program are different but I'm, I'm you know it's not necessarily for me but I want my kids to be different so this is really interesting Regardless of where you stand on the faith thing, like there is a morality that has a tangible difference in people's lives. Just by acting it out. You're right. And by example. Mm-hmm. I see. So for fundraising, does that mean that you you and Matt would go around to churches and talk about your mission and then ask for that special donation at the end of the service? Yes, yeah. Okay. So you had to do you do a year of that and then that funds how long of a trip? They, it was more that they set a budget and you just went until the budget was raised. So oh, okay. some people could do it in less than a year. We were more than a year. We were like a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. And it's and, and so you've been, how many different countries have you been to doing that kind of work? The fundraising or the just, into the, just the mission, mission work. work? We were always just meant to go to the Dominican, but because of our filmmaking, we got invited to like 12 other countries to do that because it becomes a media tool for mm-hmm. everybody in telling the story. So how did that transition happen? 
from the just just doing the mission work to suddenly like, oh, we really like your video work. Oh, we really like what you're doing down here. Well, they're always sending emails saying, please send us your testimonies. Please send us any photos or videos that you have. And we would. And then when they sent it out from the national office, 50% or more of the material was our material specifically. And it like looked and sounded better than <laughs> the other material. And then a, basically there was like, it sounds like the only thing we do in this program is in the Dominican Republic. So let's get you to some other countries so we can help tell everybody's story. Uh, how about that? Yeah. So it's, you know, like, let's, let's spread the love around. No <laughs> love, pun intended. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So how long did it take before that became a thing? Like, was it after one trip? They're just like, wait, wow, you got, you take some great pictures. <laughs> I love your audio recordings. And uh, A term is about five years there's about the year fundraising and then year overseas for about four years so we were in maybe about three years total like two years into the Dominican Republic where there was talk of hey why don't you come to a trip that we're doing in Nicaragua and you could be our photographer and that went to Matt and then after that it was like that was good let's invite you again um and Matt's like you know if we bring Carrie then we can do this and this and so then pretty soon we were doing like week trips to different places like Nicaragua, uh, Costa Rica, Peru, Guatemala, Honduras. So you actually carved out your own niche sort of within that mission based on your, your skill set. Now, were you, were you self-taught as far as the camera stuff goes? I know that Matt has a business background. Uh, how much was filmmaking a part of your education before you started doing these mission trips? Uh Matt is definitely a self-taught guy. He, he's the type of guy that'll sit at home and for fun likes to read manuals. So he'll just like, we're sitting on the couch and watching TV and he's looking through the new lens manual on something. Um, I actually have an undergrad also in film. Uh, when we started doing- Wait a minute, so how many, how many years were you an undergrad? Uh, the, were you like a double major, double minor? <laughs> I, I have four degrees now. <laughs> so I have uh, two, they were separate. Like this one was at Wayne State. While we were, while we were fundraising, um, I went to the Detroit school and took film classes um, as a second major or yeah, as a second degree. Okay, What's, what sparked your interest in that? Did you just have a love of filmmaking? Yeah, I don't just watch a lot of movies. Or? Uh, I do remember one moment where we were watching a movie or TV show, and and Matt turned to me and he said, "That would be so cool. That I bet we could do that." And then that kind of like opened my brain, like, "Yeah, bet we could do that. I bet that would be fun." And then so I'm online looking up like, "Where are their film classes?" Was it a production based program or was it study film studies? More production, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had okay, so you had that degree, you got that background, you start traveling around, and then it becomes this sort of specific thing where you're the team that goes and gets the photographs and you're getting the word out through media. Mm-hmm. At what point, or was there another moment where you just decided, hey, I won't just want to do this full time. Um, mission work has been you know great, whatever, but this is really when did it become clear that that was the path you wanted to pursue? Or was there even a moment, or did it just happen? So in doing the filmmaking, it was exciting to see how this was a very powerful tool to um, educate, motivate, and be a voice in society. And so uh, as we were doing this in Latin America, it just became more and more enticing to be able to do this on like a larger scale with larger conversations. And so... Um, Did you feel like you hit a limit to what the self-taught method could give you? 
Yes, uh, we were doing a lot of self-taught, and but we understood that our work was not getting out. Our work did not have a platform. And even in trying to network with other filmmakers, we found it very difficult and frustrating. And, and they would always say that our content had high quality, but then like that's kind of where the conversation would end. And so I felt like if we were gonna take this to the next level, we needed to figure out what that wall was. And so for me coming here was hugely, coming to Ohio University to study film was extremely important because I could understand the larger conversation of film that was taking place. I can understand where and why filmmakers collaborated and what they celebrated. And then we could work to try to integrate some of those things into our, our projects. And I think it's worked. Like we're definitely in different circles when we talk and when we display our work and it's, I feel it's getting more of a voice than we had before. So you, you, you basically expanded the possibilities of, what, of the audience you could reach, of how you could express yourself. Um, at the same time, you were developing how to do that in a better, in a better way, right? <laughs> right. We, we, we did the grunt work, and then they were coming to, like, the philosophy and higher art. Right, exactly. So, so you both applied to OU yes. and got in, Yes. of course. Did you put in your application, like, will not be attending if spouse is not also accepted? Did you? <laughs> we didn't, although I think in our letters we did said it would be really great if both of us got in. My husband and I are a team, and we do this. And so even when they interviewed us, they interviewed us as a team. Oh, like wow. our Skype call was a team call. I see. So when you when you first got here, was there what stood out as the biggest challenge as far as storytelling is concerned? I mean, because I, I know that this program in particular emphasizes the writer director track. Yeah. And some that doesn't appeal to a lot of people, or some people feel like there's a huge gap in some area of production that they really need to figure out. Did you have that kind of moment when you got here? There were kind of two main thoughts. One was we were not, we were not used to doing so little work in terms of productivity. We were at a point of doing maybe 50 videos a year and after like after year 1 we could only show like 3 projects. Um, you know so you were used to a pace of like cranking material out. Cranking material out and doing lots of other stuff. So like having so little so much precious on so few projects was difficult for us because there's so much that's learned every time you do something like, oh, that was bad. I'm going to change that on the next one. I'm going to change that on the next one. Um, and if you only do two projects a year, you don't get a chance to do that sort of learning and self-taught growth, like what lands, what doesn't land. People can tell you things, but until you've done it, then you can be like, oh, this is what they meant when they said that. So you basically have a disrupted feedback loop yeah because when you're constantly putting material out you're like oh wait wait a minute that didn't quite. okay that's interesting what, what was it like had you written anything um narrative before you got here because uh, i know that you i mean you are a writer director you've now um you finished your thesis film of mm -hmm. course um you've been in the athens film and video festival three years running now i believe is that correct right yes so yes. so you've been doing i mean is there a particular part of the process that for you is the most exciting or that you really want to focus on because I know you're mm -hmm. of course capable of doing every job because I've seen you do every job but is there one in particular where it's like this is this is where I really want to focus my energy my favorite part of the filmmaking process is that there would be like this idea or this emotion or this theme that I've been thinking about and wrestling with and then it comes like 
crafting what that looks like and then having people come back to me in after the screening and like pull out that moment and say that really meant something to me or I found it really interesting that you had this thing in your story that was just so captivating and it's sort of like a yes that's that's what I wanted to have out there it's the most rewarding part so it's it's the expressing those ideas and then actually connecting with the audience connecting with the audience and helping having them join with me in in reflecting on that moment and pulling out a part of their humanity in this experience and being able to even to, pro- to project their experience into that experience and have them kind of more fully ex- express it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had, for example, with Tiara, my thesis film, I've had many, many women come to me afterwards and say, I know I was a tomboy or I was this person, or I was this person, and there just wasn't a place for me. And so thank you for telling the story because I feel like it brought voice to this experience I had that gets sort of dismissed. Let's talk about Tiara because I was on that film. Yes, thank you so much. You were wonderful. Uh, so, actually, how about you just give a brief synopsis of it? Because uh, it is, I mean, this podcast is not going to be posted until after the film festival, but it is screening at the film festival. Uh, to tell me a little bit about how, uh, first of all, about the, let's just start with, give me your synopsis of Tiara. Okay. Tiara is the story of a young person who finds that she doesn't quite fit into the gender norms of the world around her and so even though it's a loving supportive space she's sort of awkward in that space and they want to love and support her but they don't know how to do it and it's how she navigates how she navigates that um that difference and so there's a lot of escapism there's a lot of internal processing and and things that boil out because of it so that is a, I'm, I'm assuming here, uh, a reflection of your own experience growing up as a tomboy. Yeah, and yeah, just definitely. Not, not quite fit. Because there, there were these, there were these little elements in there that really resonated with me because I was raised in a you know Christian family, um, went to church, Sunday school, Bible camp, all that stuff. And and one of the things that really, really hit me. Um, first of all, there's one moment in Tiara that's my absolute favorite, and it's when the main character is sitting in the pew looking at the minister and just, like, passing her finger over her eye. Because I remember doing that when I was in, in church while I was also, like, drawing pictures of Batman and Robin Hood and King <laughs> Perfect. Arthur. Perfect. <laughs> but it was interesting because there's there's a... It seems like in any structure... There's a structure that helps things move along, okay? There are things that keep things on an even keel. Like if you have society at large or any kind of institution, you have these kind of guardrails and foundations on which to establish something. But then there's always the people that innovate never fit into that particular structure. And the other thing about watching that was just remembering, like, I, you know, never feeling quite comfortable not even just in church, just in other places where it's like, I, you know, I, this doesn't really make sense to me. Like, how come, how come I'm not responding in the way that I feel like I'm supposed to respond? Or how come I feel like I'm competing with people that I don't even want to be like? Because that the relationship, the sister relationship in that, I thought was really interesting because you, you, you could see that they cared about each other, but you could also see that there was a jealousy not of what the other sister had, but a jealousy of the value that was placed on that by other people which for a kid is like that's like you can't untangle that when you're what like 11 years old i mean it's yeah. it's almost impossible so getting to see that 
frustration, but still seeing that there was that that connection, I think was was really, I don't know, it rang really true for me getting to watch it because you know I've got like six kids in my family and it's never simple, you know. Yeah. So I want to talk about that related to your second year film Pine Cove because mm-hmm. these are radically different projects because Pine Cove is is. Can you give me a synopsis of Pine Cove? I don't, I don't want to minimize it to like a soundbite right. because <laughs> if you can, because because it, it's a it's a lesbian mm-hmm. film, but that doesn't really tell you what it's about. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Well, I, I I feel like I'm drawn to stories of people who are where their narrative is being told to them rather than being able to say what their narrative is, and so. Pine Cove is a story of two young ladies finding each other and trying to figure out what that means, but the rest of the world around them is trying to impose what their world should be. And so there's demands and interruptions and um, social norms, but they find a way to create their own world together. And, and, and so that's, I feel, is happening in Pine Cove and in Tiara. There's this sort of reinterpretation of a space that says that you can put all these things on me, but I'm still like my world is my world and I don't know what that quite means but that isn't, space is autonomous yeah isn't that always the tension like between the individual and what and, and society because you, you have what you're supposed to do then you have what you're compelled to do and then mm-hmm. they don't match so that's that's the conflict there then and then how do you navigate that how do you recreate that narrative do you break down under it do you beat it do you um, go off into a dream space where they can't touch it there's different ways of negotiating those pressures and also well that's interesting because I I never I really on the surface level I didn't think that Tiara and Pine Cove were thematically linked but now that I'm now it is very different in tone and yeah Yeah, that's how about that is escapism a big part of your approach I do like escapism in my storytelling I feel that's how I've negotiated a lot of things, and so that I feel that's how my stories come together. So, like, there are truths, and you want to you, you stick to it. Be, there are truths that are out there that are being said by main society, and you identify with those truths, so you're there standing with them. But it never quite comes through in the same package that you see it, and you don't quite fit in what they're telling you you need to be or how you should function with that truth. And so there's this escapism um, in how you reinterpret your role in that space. Are there any particular, like, are you a fantasy geek? I, I mean, love fantasy, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of my films have sort of dream spaces, my favorite films have dream spaces or sort of a ridiculous nature to them. So so you can get away from the kind of neorealist or, um, I don't know, I, I've right. been thinking. I value them and I get them, but I, I much more enjoy the escapist and sort of a little bit of fantasy. Mm-hmm. Well, film school, I think, and one of my my late uncle said one of the most perfect things to me about a month before he passed. He said, uh, "I know you're in film school, watching a lot of black and white French films. <laughs> yeah, but do me a favor and watch Weekend at Bernie's one of these days. It's, it, it was it was it was really sweet because it, it reminds me like we're in this really intense academic environment. Mm-hmm. We're getting exposed to a lot of different ideas." theories, um, prescriptions of how to do things. And I know that you've done, you've taken a lot of film studies classes 
and I know that you've you've studied you know LGBT cinema. You have you've gotten into feminist theory, experimental film, like a lot of those things. But then when I watched Tiara, I wasn't. It, it was just a. What what I responded to in Tiara was was these human relationships. I was not thinking style. I wasn't thinking. Um, what philosophy of filmmaking does Carrie have? I was just like I, I could I could just put all that to the back and just watch watch these 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 girls figure out their life. Um, what kind of what kind of those classes and theories and filmmakers and thinkers have influenced your approach to filmmaking, or have they? Because I know that film studies and film production are they are on different sides of everything. Everything, everything. Even you, when you're talking technical language, there's a different interpretation of what edit is and a different interpretation of what a shot is. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of my biggest frustrations taking film studies classes is I just looked, I, I would look at, and I have nothing but respect for the academic rigor it takes to engage these ideas. However, I wanted to always say, have you ever been on a film set? Like, <laughs> yeah. Do you realize that I am not God and that there are budgetary limitations and the reason that there's a there's some graffiti in this shot is not a comment on society it's because it's the only location i could find like and it looks cool and it blocked the frame nicely yeah right right so 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 what has your experience been of that now that you're on the other side now that you've graduated and gotten through that because you and i have had lots of discussions about this kind of stuff privately and i I just want to kind of hear now that you have a little bit of distance from graduating how, how do you contextualize your background in film theory and experimental um with the kind of stories that you want to tell I loved the film theory classes. I, I felt like I was the dumb one in the class the whole time, and I, I understood that I didn't f- understand the conversations fully. When film studies people talk with film studies people, they talk on a level that's, I feel, above me, sometimes more than one or two notches. But Really? <laughs> I do, I You're do. You're one of the smartest people I know, Oh, Carrie. my gosh. I feel like I'm faking it all the time. No, I've, I've never <laughs> oh. gotten that impression. Oh, thank you. You were very kind. Then I'm faking it really well. Uh, but I really like how they read it and interpret it and articulate it and it helps put words to how I feel and what I'm seeing and what I want to put in an image. And um, for example, with my thesis film, I did a first draft and showed it to Erin Schlumpf and she said, okay, um, here are 30 films that I think you should go see. 30? <laughs> it, it was 20 or 30 films and she just wrote like... Were they features? Yeah, all features. Oh my goodness. And I found like most of them and she even let me some, which is really kind, um, to, to just see different conversations uh, from different angles to help me, do I want to make this a child story? Is this an adult story? Is this um, violent? Is it like friendly? Is it... Um, is it a happy tone? Is it a sad tone? Like all of these different angles of how people have handled the subject in the past. And then I could step away um, for a while, let that brood, and then kind of birth something out that was my own with this new informed space. Um, and so before I was sort of bumbling with my thoughts on the page. And then afterwards, I felt very kind of confident as I put out my story. Like I understand what the conversation is and I know what I'm doing with the conversation. So it helped to, so basically when you see how other filmmakers approach similar ideas, it helped to crystallize your approach. Yes. So, but it didn't necessarily give you a framework for, hey, we're doing this cinema verite with natural light and handheld camera with non-professional actors. (laughs) <laughs> correct, correct. I think you have to d- decide those afterwards. What does the story need? Um, 
so you're not straight up copying. But that being said, I did gravitate to like two filmmakers that after watching everything, um, I really appreciated the conversation that they had, but then I found that two filmmakers really informed what resonated with what I wanted to do, and so then I kind of leaned on their techniques. And who were they? Celine Siama, who is the French filmmaker who did Tomboy and Girlhood, and she is the scriptwriter for My Life as a Zucchini. Oh, wow, yeah. That's she, the only one of those I've seen. <laughs> yeah, right. But it, she does real interesting coming-of-age stories and how, like, young people are just in this space and what it means and how she directed her actors was really interesting she just kind of like gave them motivations and let them do their moments and just captured those moments that were very organic she staged them but they were very organic because she just stood back and let the camera leave them alone as they did it um, which I found interesting I wonder Um, how many takes she needed I don't know. Well, it's not usually super prescriptive. Like uh, one is a soccer scene where they're just playing soccer and there's maybe like 10 minutes of soccer in the film of them playing with a few specific dynamics. Um, was that something that they cut back and forth to at different points in the script? Or was it okay. different different games, I think. And okay. so she kind of knew where she how she wanted those relationships to mature. And so she could kind of position them slightly different through their soccer game to get those moments or there's another point I think where they're doing chewing gum they're just chewing gum and playing around and just goofing around with each other so that kind of informed how I wanted to create like this child space and room to breathe Um, and then the other one was uh, Abbas Kiristami the Iranian yeah, exactly. I, I still have not seen a Kurosawa film. You, I, I'm embarrassed that I hadn't really until this. I have such a I'm, long list of films I need to watch. So it's, many. It's, <laughs> it's pretty mesmerizing. He creates like this energy or this spirit that's just very captivating. It's a very simple premise, and he doesn't do a whole lot with it, but it still engages you really completely, at least for me. And, and sort of like, it's both reality and sort of dreamlike, and I liked that, and I wanted to capture that. And a lot of my car shots are Kirstami films, like sort of looking through the windshield and looking through the window, and you kind of see a person, but you don't see a person. Ah, uh, you don't use the polarizer filter. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> exactly. And it was just mesmerizing. It was beautiful in a kind of dream space, which really lent itself to what I wanted. Like, this girl was creating another world, and so it felt like she was in another world. Mm-hmm. So would you say dreamlike from the character's perspective or as an aesthetic um, consideration? Because there are dreamy things like slow motion with soft light and nice reflections in the in the mirror or the window or something like that. But or or is it dream as as strictly like an escapist perspective or more of the second? It, it's okay. less of like a movie trick and more of a making you contemplate what's going on, where the headspace of this character is, kind of giving you giving you time to project your thoughts and reflect your life and what that means in this conversation. Um, two good films that I was recommended to watch is Taste of Cherry and um, Close Up. Those have really interesting moments in them. Those are Kirstami. Those are Kirstami. Mm-hmm. One of these days. I know. They're I online. <laughs> Fortunately, a lot of his movies are on YouTube, so it was easy to just go look it up. It's interesting because there are some filmmakers that I'm influenced by, but you wouldn't look at my films and think like, oh, he's influenced by such and such. Like, would, would that be fair to say about... Well, actually, because I know that Matt Matt showed me some footage from Tomboy. Mm-hmm. 
and I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. Oh, it's funny. It's funny you bring up the whole uh, how. What was her name? The director who did that. Celine Siama. You had a couple of scenes, and was this intentional? I'm sure it was. Now that you've told me, where the girls in your film were playing with the wheelbarrow, mm-hmm. and when they have the shadow thing where they're punching each other, and like those kind of playful moments. Okay. The, the shadow's a little more staged, um, right. but the, the wheelbarrow, they're laying on the ground, looking at the clouds. Just pick out clouds. Tell you know, figure out what they are. Do this. Do that. Uh, kind of giving them some direction, but then then letting them do it organically. Mm-hmm. Um, gives them more natural performance. How did you get a natural performance when you're dealing with, because I know that your performers were, had done like a, high, uh, like a middle school theater or like community theater kind of stuff. Did you have to track the character arc through the narrative and did you have to, how did you get them in the headspace for that? Because it's not like they're, mm-hmm. they're able to abstract the way, you know, a 20 year old or something like that could work. I, I found I had several rehearsals with them before we actually filmed, and I found if they memorized the lines ahead of the day that it was really mechanical and they didn't change their performances very much. So I asked the mother to have them not memorize their lines. Um, and really? Yeah. Well, then how do you prepare? Well, my film's a very quiet film. If you remember, there's not a whole lot to it, and you can get into the shot, and it, they basically need to remember the one line at that moment. And so it feels a lot more authentic. Um, I also found I, I like to see them do the first take to see what's really kind of landing about their performance and their character choices, then give them notes to get them where I want them to be, and then they're really mechanical for a take or two, and then by about take eight or ten, like I've gotten quiet and I just do another and another, so by about take eight, take eight or ten, um, they've like fallen into a natural performance again with the notes that I've given them. And so it's going in the direction that I want it, but it feels really kind of meaningful and authentic. So the, so those takes aren't, we did it wrong, let's do it again. Those takes are just the process, just letting the process. You had a lot of, lot <laughs> of rolling takes, right? Like you, yeah. how, many, how many takes did you have in a rolling take? What's, what's your record? My, the record for that film was 15. Oh my God. But with like uh, either the head sigh one or the finger one, I know that we had two or three takes, so there might have been like 30 versions of something, but not very often. The, the, the highest in a single rolling take was, I think, 15. My goodness. But they were shorter moments, uh, yeah. Right, yeah, but, but, but still. Uh, I, I was thinking, uh, when you have child actors, how much character decisions how many character decisions are they making or are you casting because they have a quality that you think already fits what the character should be I know that there's always part of that in the Mm -hmm. casting process but what was your casting process like because they weren't from Athens right Uh, I auditioned I feel like five or six young people for the main character um I have fortunately got that lead from a friend of a friend who said, hey, um, actually the Florence, they always use McKenna. Mm -hmm. McKenna's mom saw my post on Facebook and she said, I have the perfect set of sisters. You're going to want to check them out. And um, it was worth the drive out to Cincinnati to audition them in person. Cincinnati? Yeah. So you you took some camera out there and... There's a road trip, and they weren't the only ones. There's like another set of sisters in Columbus that I auditioned, and several in Ohio, or in Athens that I auditioned. Um, 
just there was a chemistry between the two of them because they were actually sisters and then like they kind of embodied some characteristics that I thought were really interesting and um I like doing adjustments in an in an audition to see how well they can take notes and change their performance based off of the feedback mm-hmm. and they they auditioned or they um make adjustments really well and so I thought they were really professional too they were great they were so like uh, Sounds. They're athletes. They're like in they're in theater and they're in cheer, and so they're used to day long events and doing it over and over and over again. And so that patience was amazing. <laughs> I'm always blown away by when you get talent that, for some reason, and I'll get over this at some point. I hope maybe when I have a budget to pay actors, but I always feel guilty for making them work. Yeah. Or for saying we need another take, or like you're going to be here for twelve hours. And then I'm remi- then I remember like, like I know what it's like to be on a film set. You have actors who care about acting. This is them being on a film set. We're learning together, and it's fine. But I still can't get that nagging like they're doing me a favor thing out of my head, and I better honor that by moving as quickly as possible. But yeah, so so you ended so you screened the film, mm-hmm. graduated, yes, done. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about your uh, experimental work. Okay, because you. The one, yeah, it was two years ago, your self-portrait got in. Mm-hmm. And then last year, your, what, what, I can't remember the title of it. Swimming. Swimming. Mm-hmm. So those ideas came out of assignments. Yes. But then you chose a particular way to do it. So for your self-portrait one, what gave you the, because it, it, it was the best self-portrait from your class. I'm just going to say that Aww, hands thanks. down. Because, <laughs> because it, I mean, it was, really, it was really creative and it was really, it, it made me stop and think, which I think is a good thing if you're making those kind of films. Like, why did you decide that approach to the self-portrait? Because it was pretty much a description of, like, well, let's just, how about you just describe it because you, it was your film. <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that it landed so well uh, because when the assignment was described, it was two to three minutes, something about you, make it creative, boom. Go. And and go yeah and so the very first thought like within ten seconds of that sentence finishing I thought something about me that's creative um, okay flaws what are my flaws how does that look and boom and the, it was kind of I had this I like I knew where I wanted to go with it um, I it, it was also very helpful that my cinematographer is my husband <laughs> it is immensely hugely wonderfully um, helpful he's amazing he's very talented. Um, but we've we have like ten years of filmmaking together, so I know his strengths, I know his speeds, I know how he responds to my direction, and so I knew the project, how it would turn out before we even started. A lot of times, when you're doing it and you're building your team, it's sort of a surprise on the back end what you get. Um, I knew exactly what I was going to get. Like and I, you, were, I mean, you were completely comfortable in front of the camera, so. Even just watching, I was like, I was like, oh, I didn't know Carrie was an actress. <laughs> <laughs> I don't find myself an actress, but I don't know. In that moment, it was really easy to do. I don't know. Yeah, and then we were in experimental film class together, mm-hmm. and you did swimming, mm-hmm. and that was about sexual harassment. Basically, it was about casual sexual harassment. Right, the microaggressions that kind of like build up and kind of mess with your psyche. Right, and I. How, first of all, how did that idea come? Because I know David just says, hey, bring me something, mm-hmm. right? And I know that you go swimming a lot. Um, and was it, was it, did the swimming spark that idea? Was it because you wanted to make a social statement? Did you have 
a message that you wanted to give and then you built a film around that or did you have an idea for a film and then that became a natural progression of what the message actually I don't know if I articulated that correctly, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. which led the creative decision making on that project? So that was actually the footage. The all of the footage was basically f- my doc from my first year, and then it never got to a point point where I wanted it to go. And it basically that experimental film is what I had imagined my doc to be. <laughs> oh, And so okay. when David was talking about it, I just kind of got excited that I could finish this project that I had started before and had pitched, but like never really got any traction on due to all of the time constraints. Um, so you you basically, because that we were in that class right, that was right when all the Harvey Weinstein stuff was coming out. Because mm-hmm. I remember specifically one day in class reading Salma Hayek's op-ed in the New York Times and I'm a huge Salma Hayek fan, and it was like really heartbreaking to read that. And then we go into class, and you brought in this footage like, like the same day or something like that. I was like, oh my god! So it was a synthesis of ideas, basically, is mm-hmm. what it was. That's really interesting. Like I knew that, yeah. In that earlier on, I knew that I wanted to make a doc that did that, but just didn't get the chance. And then after the Harvey Weinstein and all of the Me Too conversations came out, it kind of helped package those moments and how I needed to tell them and so that was sort of a synthesis of like the time and the moment and some feedback from the class of like what would make it then watchable and uh, yeah it was again interesting and raw and being honest and but yeah. Are you getting getting more comfortable with that? To some extent yes and some extent like I mean it's always a painful thing to like reflect on some stuff but it kind of like puts it in perspective when you're able to have a voice with what you've experienced. Mm -hmm. Do you get a certain measure of like catharsis or satisfaction out of actually putting that out into the world? Yeah, uh, it screened at the film festival and uh, in that particular screening there was a mom with a middle school girl and so immediately afterwards she found me and she's like, thank you for saying that. Like, like you want to protect your daughter moving forward and you want to let them know that these evils are out there. So being able to talk about it, knowing that it's not their fault, being able to make smarter decisions in the moment. Because I think part of it was is that these microaggressions happen and you don't know how to process them, so you carry them for years. And then afterwards you realize, like, yeah, it was pretty shitty and it wasn't my fault. And if I had any sort of wherewithal in the moment, I would have confronted it, but I didn't know I had permission to and I didn't know it was a thing. Or you Um, didn't have the confidence to set boundaries or to fight back or to establish your sovereignty right exactly yeah girls are very much taught to not have those things and not you don't have permission to have those things and it's your fault if they happen i heard somewhere recently that uh girls who have brothers that they wrestle with are less likely to be sexually harassed or molested because they know the boundaries of their own space and can fight back but then if, if, if girls do not have that kind of experience with men, knowing what men are capable of or knowing what boys are capable of, then when they're in that situation, it's completely foreign territory. Mm-hmm. It's saying no to them and feeling right, the yeah. power to, like, it's acceptable and that when you say it, they're going to listen. There's a lot of fear of, like, if I say no or if I bring this up as a complaint that I'm going to get, like, pushback. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to get punished for bringing it up. So, like, yeah, I, I totally understand that. Yeah, and it makes me just think um 
any children I have are going to be enrolled in jujitsu uh, <laughs> so they can walk. A so co-ed jujitsu so they can at least like yeah, wrestle exactly. a few boys and the, give their uh, girls. <laughs> the Athens, uh, the Helsing Gracie Athens Academy, they have an anti-bullying program. And the instructor's uh, daughter actually helps teach the kids. So she's, I think she's like nine years old or something like that. Aww. And so she's helping teach, like, hey, if someone gets in your space, like you can do an arm bar, Ronda Rousey style. Like you can, you can fight back. You can, you can tell, you can s- diffuse the situation without hurting someone if you do this properly. And like more and more, I'm just thinking about that. Like, yeah, you need to be able to defend yourself. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, when I was watching your film, I just kept like, it's funny how filmmaking or film or cinema or like these kind of narrative experiences can give you an emotional reaction to a person that you don't actually know or didn't know because I don't know the carry that went through those things like I was not there I wasn't a witness but through that film I now like feel like I have a better understanding of your perspective and where you come from and and your voice at the same time and so it's just magic it's just really cool and the fact that you got to show that at the festival and you know got such good feedback and then having someone come up and say thank you I mean, that's got to be just amazing it's, it's very yeah knowing that you want to say something in it that it lands is really pretty magical it's it's pretty satisfying it kind of brings full circle to you raising this complaint because i think filmmaking is a way of it depends on if you're if you're trying to make a statement or not, but it's a way of putting a statement out there that you want people to hear and to have people come back and say, "I've heard it." is just very satisfying. What, what do you make of the distinction between, excuse me, um, art and propaganda? Because this this is something that I think about quite a bit. Because anytime there's a film about a social issue, there's always this line of like, okay, are we, are we having a didactic, this is what you're supposed to believe, or are we establishing um, a context to have a discussion or a context mm-hmm. to evaluate what we're seeing on the screen? And I think that there's a tendency, if you have a really strong conviction about something, to just hit it with a sledgehammer and remove the nuance. And no, I'm not saying I get that from your films, because right, I don't right, get right. that from But like films. a Michael Moore film is a very... Right. That's it's storytelling. Like, that's not that's doesn't seem like creative exploration. That seems like didactic, um, just pounding and and it's almost a I don't want to use the word abuse, but I just use the word abuse. It does seem a little abusive mm-hmm. and a little bit disingenuous too, but I guess if you don't make any apologies for that method, then you really can't be blamed. I don't know. What do you think about that? Because I know that there's uh, even with studying um, like the horror film narratology class, mm-hmm. there are certain films that would get brought up as being important, but they weren't good films. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, I know this is all a little bit tangled, but what's mm-hmm. what's, your, what's your take on that? Like, do you is there an approach that you personally take to avoid those things? Uh, is it conscious, or are you just looking for an idea instead of packaging an idea? Yeah, I, I don't know that I have a full answer, but I probably just would ask more questions with you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I wonder, like, I feel that a, most female filmmakers, like, pose questions rather than beat over the head. But then that's me being generalist. I know that there are film female filmmakers that are very heavy-handed. Um, I wonder if, yeah, I, that's... I... Like when we were doing the nonprofit work, 
Like there was one right answer that we wanted people to walk away with. We want you to like Child Hope and we want you to fund it. And so that becomes like sort of heavy handed storytelling in unashamedly doing so. Um, yeah, it's, it's like advertising. Yeah. Sort of. So people will say, oh, so you and Matt have a documentary background. And I'll be like, documotional? Like, because it's a documentary promotional. Or, <laughs> yeah, or, or even um, marketing. Yeah, it's basically mar- yeah, it's marketing. It's nonprofit marketing. Even when extent. it was like there there we would take a testimony and we would build it into a narrative form, it was still very much marketing and promotion. Um, even though we're trying to bring authenticity to the story. I feel the difference between like the narratives that we did in Latin America and the narratives that I've done here is more of I'm not assuming you're going to come away with any sort of sp- specific feelings i just want you to see through my lens for a little bit and then have that inform your life decisions (laughs) like to see the world a little look through my lens for a little bit so you can see where i'm coming from and then i'm not arrogant enough to say that you need to stay here like you've got your own lenses to look through but if you look through my lens i think you'll understand the world better and it also seems like filmmaking is just another dialect you speak then to convey your ideas yeah yeah i think so Wow. When there's the opportunity. Yeah. Right. Of course. And and when when someone's receptive, of course, because. Again, it's about being like having an audience for it or having a platform. Yeah. Right. You can make this thing and it just sits there and it feels sort of like this dead statement you've put into the air. Yeah. Well, congratulations on winning the uh, Marietta Film Festival award-winning filmmaker. Short, the Colony Short Film Festival. That's that's great. Yeah. Thank you. It was very fun. It was unexpected. It was. I feel like the system is so big and so competitive, like when you get into other markets and that nobody really has a chance to have a voice to show where you've got. And so when you get into like the more local film festivals, then you've got a community who has some shared experiences. And so when you tell the story in that space, it resonates particularly well because they're like, yeah, that's my like, I get that or that speaks to me because it's part of something that's recognizable for them. And so it was really fun. local filmmakers who do really great stuff wanting to celebrate local filmmaking. And you shot most of that film in Marietta. A good portion is, of it, yeah. yeah. It was super fun. Yeah, the production designer was from Marietta. The the youth pastor that led us into the larger church, he's from Marietta. He mm-hmm. grew up with Bridget. Oh, great. Yeah. Isn't Bridget fantastic? Bridget is amazing. <laughs> Bridget Anderson, uh, fantastic production designer if you ever need one in the Athens area. And fantastic person and fantastic oh, so goodness. many things. She yeah. Just, <laughs> I would tell her ideas that I had for my thesis and she would just take out her notebook and her pen and I, I would be just ranting and then she'd go like this and turn it around and show me Yo. her design right on the spot. And I was just like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Awesome. Yes. Oh my goodness, it's, it's so like much fun. exactly what I'm thinking, but I didn't think of that specifically and you took whatever it was and made it so much better. Right, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's the collaboration amazing. part of it, which I, I've become just really, I really enjoy that now. So that's interesting you mentioned the, the regional uh, film festival because yeah your average New York resident is not going to look at something shot in Marietta mm-hmm. and think oh this speaks to my experience right <laughs> which yeah probably not yes the average east coast person probably didn't push their sibling around in a wheelbarrow right. or make contraptions with their bicycles and gates and stuff I feel fortunate that I grew up in a rural environment because those little things I was like oh, okay yeah I remember that 
There's also so much about like life and tactile and your your place in all of this. Like it's not just the busyness of work. It's like there's this earth and planet and how you interact. Yeah. You do get more connected to the earth and the seasons. Mm -hmm. That's something that when I'm every time I, I visit home, when I was young, my mother would always point out if a hawk was on a fence post. Or if there was, there are there are bald eagles who live in my uh, uh, neighborhood. I guess you could say super cool. And so <laughs> my mother was always pointing out, like, oh, it's an eagle, and she'd slow the car down, like, take a look, and oh, it's a hawk, like, see, it's a red tail hawk. So she was constantly pointing out these little signs of nature, or she would say, hey, go outside and look for signs of spring, and we, we'd go out and we'd look and we'd report that the daffodils were starting to come up, or or oh, I heard birds outside, or like, look, the grass is growing again, and. She was constantly reminding us of these, these like the cycle of the seasons and why are we chopping wood? It's still warm out, you know. That's because it's going to get cold soon. You know, we have to make sure we have firewood. And, and uh, you know, if we don't work now, then we're not going to have these things in the wintertime. And so it's just interesting that, that there's a, a country mentality did something for me, uh, understanding my place, like, mm-hmm. on the planet in a way that I don't think living in a city can right, really yeah. do effectively um, maybe by proxy if you see those stories perhaps, but it, it's a completely different thing. So now that you've gotten these, maybe short films, you've, you've, you're probably going to get another degree at some point, right? <laughs> when, when are you heading back to school, Carrie? Uh, I, I don't know. There's not a plan at the moment. <laughs> There's probably finding out what those next steps are just in life and in the career and how to make a living and yeah. Right. But now, um, so I talked to Matt and Eric the other week about uh, the kind of theory of 360 video and VR and how those things work. And you are a producer director on these projects. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the 360 video VR mm-hmm. things? Because it, this is like tip of the spear kind of stuff that you're working on right now. And I'm also very glad to be part of this process on the crew because it's been just watching the process has been amazing and I still don't have a grip on it. So, <laughs> so how did the, um, we heard a little bit about this grant that Eric mm-hmm. um, helped put together. Uh, and then, so what is your job now? I mean, you, you are a faculty member at OU, technically, correct? Staff and then teaching an adjunct class. Um, I'm not sure what faculty specifically entails, but yes. Um, so at this point, uh, I'm producing a series of videos. Um, we had a director, but the director didn't work out. And so since I had a background in directing, and Eric also has a background in directing, we just stepped up and absorbed those roles in addition to our other roles. Um, so it's not your primary role? No, but specifically I was hired as the producer of the project, So which means collaborating with all of the different departments and moving the project forward. Um, which has been very interesting because we'll have conversations with our script writing team and our medical team and they speak different languages and sometimes facilitating that conversation but then understanding that it needs to go through this team and this team and this team and I'm sitting in all of those conversations so I'm kind of like guiding their conversation slightly so that it'll be very palatable for the next step and be palatable for the next step Um, and it's really interesting to see this thing start here and then end over here in a final product. Um, like right now, we're working on a website also that these videos live in. And so the conversation of like, we have these 12 videos, what are the learning points in between them? How does that, you know, what sort of web-based interactive thing can we put in there to make it engaging, but still be, make the videos have a platform? It's just very interesting. And then. 
everybody along the way is really good at what they do. They're like, they're, they're top of the game. And so then just being around all these smart people in different ways is just super fun. <laughs> like you think you come to the table with this really smart information and then they talk circles around you on it. And it's just kind of, it's really fun. How many different departments are involved in this project? <clears throat> I feel like six, potentially. Wow. Um, there's the health department, like the the healthcare so, so side. So we'll, let's, the, let's yeah, back yeah. up a little bit and just brief synopsis of the actual project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't know how much it was from before. <laughs> no, because yeah, because yeah. I'm not. This is a separate podcast. Sure. So I mean, I just need, I need to refresh my memory too for the for the uh, the listening audience as well. Um, so, the Ohio University applied for a grant um, to make a series of virtual reality training videos that are meant to teach medical professionals, social determinants of health. And social determinants of health are things like housing insecurity, job insecurity, transportation problems, um, living in a violent space or a crime space, um, not having a social network. And all of these things work together to position someone to be very successful in their own health journey or unsuccessful. So a doctor might be frustrated that a patient shows up late or misses appointments regularly, but if the doctor understood that this patient um, is taking care of a son that has brain damage from working in Afghanistan and that their children can't have child care and it's hard for them to find child care while they work and um, everybody in the house struggles to get meals regularly so this person absorbs those roles to make the family work better and all of these extra stresses health personal health becomes a secondary factor and that's very common in um, a lot of uh, patients and so if we can educate uh, medical providers on some of these factors, then they can be better allies in working with those patients to find strategies that work for them. And the idea of using virtual reality versus another training method is that there are some early studies that suggest that virtual reality connects with our brain in a different way that is more authentic. So even though it's very staged, it kind of, the chemical receptors makes it feel very real. And so we have this true empathy for these people and these issues that we um, might not have if we read it in a book or we were in a classroom or watched it in a straight video. So it, it takes it from from abstract to immediate. Abstract more, more to immediate directly. and like glues it in the brain in a way that other teaching methods might not. And so the purpose of the grant is to test it. There are several universities that are doing different versions of virtual reality and then we all have to do assessments on the back end. But Early assessments set, of each other? Uh, of their own projects. So we have sort of like generic assessments that we're all doing on our own. So it, the, for example, ours, we have um, a set of conferences that will take place. Um, and then we will do assessments with those participants of the conferences. Okay. To see how the videos affected them, if they have more empathy for these individuals and these issues. I see. So you take over in the directing, <laughs> directing <laughs> yeah, yeah, chair. Yeah. And what, what has the... the well, so first of all, so you're producing it. So you're right. you're communicating with all these various different departments. You are. Did you curate or or rather hire the writers for these things? I know that uh, Ina is involved with this particular project. Uh, she was in my screenplay workshop. Uh, very good writer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, how involved were you in the pre-production process of actually getting the shape of the project together? How many of those? Uh, Eric and John Bowditch and Debbie Henderson and John McCarthy are sort of the, the project leads. And so when they wrote the proposal, they're the ones who kind of put the, the 
the bones in place of what needs to happen. Like, we're going to do two series. It's going to be focused on these two types of characters. We're going to involve these faculty and staff members at OU in it getting done. And then it was kind of handed over to me. So I didn't choose Inna. I didn't choose the team. That team was chosen for me. But mm-hmm. then it was my job to fis- facilitate those conversations um, and kind of flesh out what these bones were so you make things happen yeah they give you the materials it's like okay now let's we've got this thing we don't know how to get it to the end point but that's what you do so take it from here to here and do these things Mm -hmm. so okay so then you get the pre-production set up and then they say hey carrie uh you're a director (laughs) would you mind directing this for us it is was, that basically what happened? I mean, well, it was kind of, it was a discussion, like, the the who was going to direct wasn't working out, like, it just wasn't uh, coming together, and so in discussions, Eric and I both kind of said, well, it might be kind of fun, let's do it. So it wasn't sort of, like, put on our lap, it was kind of more like we volunteered, if we're going to be honest. Okay. <laughs> like, there was this opportunity, yeah, let's do it, this will be fun. Right, and it's not like you're not qualified, but you are dealing with a different technology. It's different technology, and it was a different type of directing, and there were things that were learned along the way, for sure. So give me some examples. Uh, well, virtual reality plays in not just a frame, but plays all the way around you. So it's sort of like theater, but if theater could go all the way around you. Um, so you have to think about what action is happening in your full range. So you're, it's almost like choreography. So it's not just the performance, but it's also the choreography in full space. Um, and as that relates to that single circular camera in the center of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at, like, as, as I was, that, that affects the storytelling. So um, we need blocking that forces a person to look around. We also need sound cues that forces a person to look around. But we don't want to force force people to look around. We want it to feel authentic because a lot of our early um, research on videos that exist, that, like, if you force just, like, generically make people look around to see stuff there's a resentment that takes place in the audience the audience wants to feel like compelled to look around or they want to feel like they're an active participant not a passive active participant but then like oh yeah what did happen over there Uh, oh yeah i need to be looking at this now um like you would in a family discussion now if you were like having a family discussion and someone were just walking circles around you you'd feel like it was forced and you'd stop watching after a while because you're just going to wait for them to come back there'd be sort of this resentment of making everybody do this physical thing so that you could do your performance so you're so before you even roll the camera You've watched a bunch of these 360 videos. Yeah. You've done all the research. You've been working with to some extent. I mean, team. it's still really new, but yeah. So, so did you have to? So it stopped becoming about performance. Well, it didn't stop becoming about performance, but the choreography became is much more in the hierarchy of yeah. decision making elements that becomes boom. The, they kind of all like move forward at the same time because you need to have the story elements there you need to have the choreography there and you need to have the performances there like something that's really compelling so how, how do you establish like the, the the timing and the one of the things i noticed working on this last set was that you had you had a scene where there were kids running through the frame <laughs> there was junk all over the room uh there was like a shot where you see this you know hideously messed up foot uh you know, we have to hide the light sources. You can't. Mm-hmm. You have to shoot all these plates. Like the pract- the practical production concerns on this were insane. And I'm sitting there with Yafet, just looking at him like, 
do they really want us to find a way to hide another light when the camera can see everywhere? Like, you have to be kidding me. So how much of that were you able to to leave to the crew and or is that just a constant conversation you're having as a director? Because I think one thing one of the things I've noticed is that the better my crew is, the more I can focus on just talking to the actors. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem like that's really possible with, with VR 360 because there's just it's all important. How do you deal with that? Well, How I, have you dealt with that? <laughs> I was, it's probably a better question. How have we done? So we would have these scripts and then I'd get sort of like an idea in my mind of like how I would watch it if I were in the headset. And then I would try to find a space that would lend itself to it because like it's not a given that you're going to find a living room, kitchen, dining room that's all open that you can see from one angle like we had in the one location. So then finding a location that kind of lends itself to how you're envisioning it, then getting into the space and kind of like making sure that your geometry is correct as you've envisioned it. Then I would go to drawings on the board with Matt saying like, here are the key things of action that are taking place and understanding enough that you need to do plates if we're going to light this at all. I'm imagining that we could do the plates here, here, and here. And he would come back with, well, that won't work, but this would work. And so then we would like make those adjustments. And then you get into the space with the actors. And then just because you envision people acting a certain way doesn't mean like they do act that way. So you run it through with the actors and then you make real adjustments of like, yeah, that was pretty demanding to think that my eight-year-old would do this task the way I was imagining it. So let's reimagine it so that my eight-year-old can do the task I need. Mm-hmm. Did you did you find that directing became way more technical? Because it seems like on Tiara, you're able to you, you know, set just up performance, a, right? Yeah. Right. You can you really just focus on the performance and really work work on capturing the moments almost with a leaning towards a documentary approach mm-hmm. um, to certain parts of it, but with 360. The timing must the timing be of was utmost everything. importance yeah. because e- even kind of, I mean, I wasn't in the shots because I was sitting on screen. <laughs> Hiding. <laughs> right, or, yeah. trying to hide in the shadows. But I did notice that there were a couple takes where, because you got some great actors on this. Uh, there were a couple times where I, I, like, I was just talking to them normally a couple minutes ago. And now, now they're, they're a crying. completely yeah. different person. <laughs> yeah. that, was re- that was really exciting to see. Uh, but the getting the timing right, how did you, with choreography, timing, like all of that in your head at the same time, was it just a matter of getting enough takes? I do. I this wasn't a rolling take type of production. There was sort of like a time limit of what everybody would be able to do, and especially with the kids, like you get maybe two or three tries. I mean, we could push for it, but kids are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. At least that's what I first saw. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I've, I do feel that you have to come in with a sense of timing because you're not going to get it in an edit because it's a one take. At least the way we shot it was a one take. So you have to have like the sense of timing and rhythm of what the script is doing going in. And then you start working with your actors who carry the scene to have that timing. And mm-hmm. then you kind of plug in the other pieces, hoping it works. Okay. And I'm, I'm guessing you got what you needed. I think so. <laughs> you know, the post-production has been a lot more arduous than we expected. Matt's still stitching stuff like more than a month later. So it's been hard to see. So, um, so a couple of technical terms yeah. uh, we need to go over. Plates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know what plates are. I don't know if my <laughs> listeners know what plates are. Sure. Okay. So in 360, uh, it's 
you can literally see in any given direction, but there aren't cameras that are 360 degrees. So what it is is several cameras with wide angle lenses capturing that 360 space and then their edges overlap. So then you take them into the program, whatever editing program you're in, and then you find a way of overlapping them in a way so that you can't tell that they were two different cameras. So that's a stitch. And it's, it's, they have formulas for it and they have programs, but it's always problematic. So there's a lot of time in fiddling with it and playing with lines. Uh, like one technique is to use hard corners or hard lines because then it's really easy to kind of line up where it needs to be. But if it's a soft line, then that gets kind of fuzzy and like the grain of the image gives it away. Um, so you're even positioning the camera yeah. to give you the best stitch lines. Yes, definitely. I see. Okay. Like you don't even want an actor, like the cameras that we use, I can't remember the name, they have the six cameras. You don't want an actor to land in between two of those cameras if they're going to be remotely close to it. You want them to um, land on where the, actu- the center of the camera so that you have less of the stitching issue later on. I see. Okay, because if they land on a stitch line and they're doing a complicated performance, mm-hmm. then there's no way you're going to be able to stitch that together. Right, and then we did camera tests to see how far away do you have to be if you are on the stitch line to not give it away, and we found that you need to be, with our camera, about four feet away. So we were trying to maintain a four-foot radius from the camera. So like when the little girl comes up and says, Bear Bear's hungry, like that landed right on a stitch line, so half of her face was garbled, and so Matt has hours like trying to like give the poor girl a face. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's the stitch, but then the plates are... You don't have to shoot 360 all in one take. You can uh, recognize that these are different cameras and like take portions of the image and shoot it one time and then shoot it again, expecting to take another portion of the image and then another portion of the image. And so that will, the benefit of that is that you can have your crew on one half of the camera side so that they can be booming and we can have the lights in and watch performance. And then we kind of flip the room so then the actors are acting on the back side and the crew is now on the other side. And then you stitch those, like those become plates, each of those different things. And part of that is the 360 camera has to stand on a stand, so you need the stand to go away. Um, If you have lights in the air, then the ceiling is probably its own plate. I know that Matt, I think he has up to six plates outside of the stitch lines. that he's that's his limit so there's already six plates because of there being six cameras Mm -hmm. but then there are six of those takes put together to make a single image that sounds like a clerical nightmare it is a clerical (laughs) nightmare and then you have to have them all stitch well and if anybody crosses a line that they shouldn't like they're you know we'd have this perfect take and then somebody's forehead would get cut off because they went into the ceiling plate (laughs) or or when we went to the food bank um since the floor was so unstable, Bouncy, we had to yeah. suspend the camera from the ceiling to keep it from shaking every time someone walked. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was intense. That was a Yafed idea. There's definitely that some tinker, tinker toys involved with making that work. The so w- mm-hmm. what, what are some of the innovations that you came up with in order to get past these uh, particular production uh, factors? Well, the the idea that you can do compositions or like. Um, do these different plates has been helpful because then you can really focus your efforts on making one portion of the image look good and then moving and doing the next portion of the image and making that look good. Um, that was one. Um, I know that there, 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 there's an outside project that we did before this that kind of motivated some of what we're doing. We did, uh, 
We did a training video in the past where um, the camera is a participant in a conversation and that you can, we call them guided simulations. So like we, the idea is if you're trying to train somebody in a, this like tense emotional situation, it's easier to do it to an avatar, so to speak, and mm -hmm. to practice your speech. And so we do that by having the camera be a character and then we put the text on the screen and then you can read the text. So you can be in this high stress environment before you're actually in a real high stress environment, practice this language, practice negotiating that relationship without any consequences. Um, so several of our films leverage that. Is, and, and I, I, well actually, when you're talking about plates, it's interesting because Matt was my gaffer for my thesis and there were so many green screen shots and I'm sure that the experience of lighting plates and matching sources and all that probably plays into it too. So it's not as if a traditional filmmaking background does not help prepare you for 360. In mm -hmm. fact, you need to be really locked down on all the technical specifications of traditional filmmaking to even approach 360 with the level of complexity that you're approaching it with. Yes. Or, or to make it good. Because I, anyone can set yeah. up a 360 camera and go, okay, here we are, look around, how about this? But actually, so guiding guiding the the wearer of the headset in the scene. Mm -hmm. How do you make how do you make sure that they're seeing what they're supposed to see for this project? Well, to some extent they are their own god in, in what they experience and so hopefully you've created an experience where they wherever they look that they're getting information in some way, but some of the techniques that we had was keep your person of importance closer to the camera and everyone else like a step or two behind because the closer you are, the bigger you are. And so it's like captivates your attention. Um, also doing sort of like a vignetting or proper lighting so that the subject is a little bit lighter and the less important stuff is a little bit darker. Um, also sound cues if you do some like dropping or talking louder or um, something that calls your attention because the sound is 360 you're you know hopefully guiding the audience to look in a direction that you want um, or if you want to hand off the attention then you might have your actor walk past the next subject that's going to captivate um, we've, we have that in at least one of our films where there's sort of the passing of attention because a person moves past and then these are all basic um, advertising cues even, yeah yeah where it's like you know make sure the brightest part of the frame is where you want them to look or if you're following action, like action motivates camera movement in a lot of ways, or, uh, you know, the, the, yeah, we give nicer light to the person that we're supposed to be paying attention to. Okay, so, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds really, that makes sense. And that's where you're like, you need to be a really good filmmaker before you do this. You need to be, yeah, you need to come with a, a large battery of skills. Yeah, you can't wing it. No. There's no, there's no way you can wing it. So you're, so you're done shooting your particular segment. We have yes. another one coming up, and you're still producing all of that, right? Are you still a yes, producer on yes. that? Yes, yes. We're not directing the side, but um, we are producing it, or I am producing it. Okay. Do you like doing this kind of work? I do like producing. I do like pulling things together and having conversations and kind of, yeah, the I like being a I like being a project manager to some extent. Like, there's so many things that need to be discovered and chased down, and it's sort of a little shooting from the hip of like how are you going to problem solve but being you have to do it wisely because it's not just that one decision it's like how does decision relate to the previous eight decisions in the future eight decisions and will it 
be in your trajectory of where you want to go and that's fun so is there a reason that you decided to go the writer director route instead of the producing route uh, yeah yeah uh, I think that's the strength of our program here is the writer director route also it's easy to find opportunities to produce and it's harder to find opportunities to write and direct I see so do you have any other like projects that you really want to do personal projects that you're developing I, I I have a couple in mind that I'm thinking about as of late I've I, I've been entertaining like what would it mean to do a feature film um, mm. using the skills in the area and sort of the conversations that are in this area so I've been kind of spitballing what that might look like um, and is, is this the feature script that you told me about the other one that you were thinking about producing I don't the really sort of body horror one with the ceiling and the anti-gravity I'm not remembering Maybe I'm remembering. Maybe I'm just remembering <laughs> the most intense moments from your description. Yeah, I always like talk about some, get into some strange moments. But no, it was the thing that caught my attention, I think, when we were discussing your thesis options was, yeah, the character kind of floats to the ceiling. I, I do want to do that. I, I really want to. And I would have done that if I wasn't like discouraged by a couple of professors. Like they're like, no, nah, you can't do that. And then Matt was overwhelmed when I pitched it. He just, his mm-hmm. eyes kind of bugged out of his head and I thought it wouldn't be very kind to him. <laughs> I see. So I still would like to do that. That is like, I have a, sc- a desk, screen top dust saver on my laptop of a woman hanging upside down in a kitchen and just... I feel it's so poetic and it says so much and I feel that I relate to it and so many people have been captivated as well saying where did you get that like I feel like my life is that every single day Mm -hmm. so I feel like there's a story there that I'd like to share just maybe the technicality might be tough (laughs) so is this is this a situation where you have this gig right now doing this 360 video you're getting all that stuff so this is one season of your career and then you're going to try to jump back into more what you train to do and what you want to do and maybe there's like a corporate side of it than the creative side of it and well there's definitely you have to figure out how you're going to pay the bills to some extent Mm -hmm. so um i think there is a natural fit to do um training videos or educational videos i think that also is sort of in line with who i am and who matt is as as filmmakers like making the world a better place with our work and so if you're making educational material in a way that is you know making the world a better way better professionals helping conversations but then i do think that we definitely like passion projects and being able to like do something narrative and creative and a fun exploration of the medium and what can be said with it we already had what two feature films shot in Athens in the last five years. Right, several. I feel more than that. I, at least two. Two that I'm aware of since I've been here. Huckleberry. Oh, that's and yeah. Three. Huckleberry. Departure are both going to be in a film festival, right? Right, and then and you then have Claire in Motion. Claire in Motion. And there was a feature documentary that was shot here a couple years back. There was. Uh, there was the former film professor too. He did one. But I don't think it finished. I see. Yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. You should totally so. do that because I know that Shaw is trying to get a feature made. Yeah, Shaw might be doing it. <laughs> Josh Crook says he's got one. He pitched it to Matt last night. So, that's yeah. Awesome. He's like, I've got Manny Perez. He's my friend. We're going to do it. <laughs> Athens, Ohio, new independent filmmaking hub of the Midwest. 
Athens is really great for filmmaking, though. Like, everybody is creative and and smart and and kind, and they open their doors to you. And as long as you're not, like, a jerk and burn them, they'll, like, they'll go, like, they'll they'll be your ally and they'll help you out. And if they can't help you with something, they know somebody who can help you with something. And Southeast Ohio has been great for filmmaking. We have, uh, we had an interesting moment on Michelle's set where we're shooting a shot of these uh, actors crossing the street and our sound recordist, it's like one in the morning thinking, (laughs) oh, no one's here, it's spring break, whatever. So our sound recordist stands in the middle of the street to get the sound and it's in a turning lane. And someone shouts out, like, are you are you really standing in the street to get sound? <laughs> and she says, no one is turning left. <laughs> so we get the shot, then we go back to this other location to get some more shots, and then we switch the lens on the Steadicam. It's like, okay, it takes forever to switch the lens. Let's get another version of that while we have the lens change. So we go back, sound recorders goes back out into the middle of the street. We're about to t- take the shot, and then this just police cruiser very slowly drives up and stops and just leans out the window and says... <laughs> It's really late at night. <laughs> You're in the middle of the street. There has got to be a better way to get your sound. <laughs> and we're like, sorry, sorry. It's like, seriously, you can you can do better than this. All right? And then so sound recorder leaves the street. Police drives off. Like just, just you know, not harassing us. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, we're making a movie. It's fine. Day before, we're filming outside of the gas station, and this drunk townie tries to start a fight. And Athens <laughs> PD comes and helps us out. The actual phone call from the gas station attendant was, we have some folks out here trying to make a movie, and there's someone harassing them. Can you help us out? Police immediately came and took care of the problem. So, yeah, even Athens PD, you tell them, hey, we're going to have some gunshots going off for a film. They go, sure, that's fine. Like, we'll send someone by just to make sure everything's okay. So there is a really supportive, creative community here. Yes. I've, I've noticed, even when I don't get things I ask for, which does happen sometimes. And that's life, yeah. Well, that's filmmaking too. It's yeah. you know what what's what's the best you can do with what you have. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not perfect. So, well, that's exciting. So, so yeah. you've got you've got a lot of things going on. Do you ever take time to relax, Carrie? <sighs> I, I I always think that there will be this time to relax, but then there are always those things that you've neglected while you were doing your things that seem to scream for attention. So kind of go and then I crash on the couch and just watch movies all day for several days and then <laughs> so you rejuvenate you don't necessarily it's not a relaxation necessarily it's more of a like yeah what can I do to get recharge, me yeah. <laughs> motivated to keep doing what I'm doing yeah so can you see yourself doing this for a while I, w- I would like to change the terms of it a little bit so it's a little more palatable because mm-hmm. currently we're 60 to 80 hours a weekend stuff so it'd be nice oh to gosh. back it off a little bit right. um to make it a little more sustainable but yeah. but you're, you're making progress you're learning yeah definitely your work is being seen by a lot of people yes, which is great it's been very fun and you're also like the go-to person for figuring things out Aww. well I mean, <laughs> well i definitely have a, a like a book of people to go to so if i don't know what to do i can definitely strategize with you of like this is how i would do it i would talk to this person i would ask them this and i would talk to this person and i would ask them this mm-hmm. <laughs> Even like on my own film, when I'm asking Savannah a question, she goes, let me ask Carrie. <laughs> let, me see, let me see what Carrie thinks and I'll get back to you. I'm like, sure. Yeah, of course. So, so, yeah, you have been an amazing resource in my time here. And thank you very much Aww. for that because we've been doing a lot of crazy projects and having that team that just is competent 
is just it's priceless it is priceless. it's 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 amazing like knowing that i can show up to one of your film sets and i know that the people around me are going to be motivated to do a good job like the, you have a way of setting the culture on set like on your sets that i've been on where it's just like okay we're here we're here to work we're going to be friendly we're going to be respectful but we're here to work and everyone seems to be on that page so you've done a really good job of curating talent behind the camera and in front of the camera i've been very lucky i've i've had good people i've had access to good people um yeah yeah that's definitely worked out yeah well let me say uh uh i've really appreciated you being on set because there's always an influx of new blood and so because of my educational background i like the set time to be a productive time, not only because you're helping this project move forward, but it's meaningful to each person in some way. And so when they come on set and I know that they're in your circle, you do such a great job of bringing them in, helping them understand set culture, helping them understand the gear they're going to be working with. And they walk away with a new set of skills and sort of this excitement of like, yeah, I want to be a grip again. Yeah, I want to do this again. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm glad I could I'm glad I could do that. I mean, you gave me great people to work with, so it wasn't a problem at all that kind of just because the first time you're ever on a film set it's terrifying because you're it's afraid overwhelming. You're there's so much there's so much you don't know what anything is called you got these people who seem to know what they're doing but don't really have time to tell you what they're doing yeah. and then you're worried about stepping on toes and it's like if you talk to the actors you might ruin something and then so it, it's just funny that i fall into a kind of a mentor role over and over again but it's it's not bad because the people that I've been able to do it with have been really receptive to it. Mm -hmm. Even on my own film, we're in freezing temperatures or it's raining or someone's sick or whatever, but I mean, just ready to work, Mm -hmm. right? Like excited, we're making movies, like let's make movies, it's gonna be great. And then hopefully enough time passes between the the chaos and the pain (laughs) of a production and then the next production to where you forget all the bad stuff and you're like, let's make another movie, it's gonna be great, so. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty of film school, or at least the beauty of having like a film network, is that everybody then turns around and helps the the, the next person on their project. And so, like everyone sort of takes turns in different roles and being allies for the other person. And that's really, really fun, really exciting. Everyone's very excited to pay back a favor that they know that has been given to them. Yeah, that's true because you can't do it alone. You cannot do it alone. You can try. And the, the people that try to do it alone end up with very small crews and, and very tight production demands, which is unfortunate, but it happens. And things get sacrificed along the way. Whatever it is, it gets sacrificed. Yeah, definitely. Anything else you want to add? Anything else you want to... No, thanks for having me out. This was fun to be yeah. able to talk and, and just kind of... Um, part of the filmmaker experience is to be able to reflect on the filmmaker experience. And so it's being able to connect with other people and at you know common experience is fun yeah well thanks again carrie yeah thank you robert all right thanks for listening to carrie love be sure to check the show notes for some links that carrie provided to the films that she mentioned in the podcast uh, you can find me on instagram and facebook at robert Kathern. feel free to subscribe and leave a review and i'll catch you next time